Welcome to Living Word Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Nathan Olson, and it's a blessing and a joy to be able to come and share God's Word with you today. Here at our church, we believe that every single time we open up the Bible, that something miraculous takes place. That this is not like any other ordinary book we would find on the shelf, but that this is God's Word, inspired, inerrant, and true from cover to cover. And so we come with an eagerness today, we come with an expectancy as we look at how God is going to use his word in our lives. Would you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we ask now that as we come to hear your word proclaimed, that you would be faithful to use your word as you promised to do, that you would come and teach us, instruct us, be our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now at Living Word, we've been doing a sermon series through the book of Jude. And maybe a book that you haven't heard of before. It's this small chapter, uh, 25 verses, and one chapter for the whole book. It kind of tucked away at the end of the New Testament. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far, but just a little bit to the left of there, and that's where you'll find the book of Jude. And today we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. And it's here that Jude brings the the Jewish Christians that he's writing to, to the Old Testament. And he's bringing them to the Old Testament to paint a picture of Jesus as both the Savior and the judge of our souls. And, And now we know one of those pictures really well. We're pretty familiar with Jesus and the picture of him as our Savior. And we understand him dying on the cross for our sins on our behalf. Uh, dying the death that we should have died. And and obviously, this is one of the chief works of Christ on our behalf. Primarily, his, his role is redemption, salvation. He has delivered us from the bondage of sin. But Jude is writing to these Jewish believers for them to realize uh, in his letter to them the significance of their sin. You see, there had been some of those in the church who had kind of grown a little bit complacent, a little bit apathetic, maybe a little dismissive of their sin. Well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, it's okay, right? You know, And they had indulged in these ways, a life following their own sensuality and pleasures. And Jude rightly recognizes that they need to have a little bit more weighty view of their sin, to realize that Jesus takes their sin seriously. And not only that, but he brings judgment upon it. And interestingly, Jude does this through looking back to the Old Testament. He paints this picture of Jesus both as Savior and as Judge by bringing these Jewish Christians back to the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles, let's look together then at verse 5. Jude writes and he says, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. This idea of Jesus as both the Savior and the Judge, Jude says, has always been there. Uh, it's, it's been something that we've seen even in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, in the salvation and destruction of those who were in unbelief. We have a picture of Jesus as the Savior and the Judge. After all, it was Jesus who saved people from Egypt and destroyed the unbelieving. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, wait a second. Jesus, Exodus, Old Testament, what? How does all this work together? I'm not quite tracking with that. I thought Jesus 
comes onto the scene in the New Testament. Well, actually, we see pictures of the pre-incarnate Christ all throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, he's, he's always been. He's God. It's not like in the Gospels, all of a sudden, you know, this appears out of nowhere. No. At the incarnation, something significant happens, for sure. I mean, God came and dwelt among us through the person of Jesus. But when we look at the Old Testament, we see God working, and we see the second person of the Trinity at work as well. And so just to give you a little bit of a brief cursory reminder of that as we come and look at Jude 5, I want to remind you of these different occurrences of the second person of the Trinity at work in the Old Testament. We sometimes call them in the theological world Christophanies, uh, appearances of Christ. So uh, the appearance to Abraham in Genesis 18, you have the three men who visited Abraham and one of them was the Lord himself. The text says there that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And uh, this is um, often thought of as, as the Lord Yahweh and two angels that were there visiting Abraham. Um, many scholars look at that as a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ there uh, visiting with Abraham. You also have Jacob in Genesis 32 who wrestles with God. And God says to Jacob, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Afterward, Jacob named the place Peniel and said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. You also see in Joshua 5, another one where a man with a sword in hand appears to Joshua before the fall of Jericho, and he identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua falls to his face and worships this man. And the commander said, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And this commander receives Joshua's worship. Uh, one of the only other places you see in scripture where this uh, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy is when God appears to Moses, right, at the burning bush. And here you have this man, this commander of the Lord's army, doing this before Joshua. In fact, many of the instances in the Old Testament beyond these examples where it mentions angel of the Lord even, capital L-O-R-D, uh, most scholars believe that this is a Christophany event, that you have the second person of the Trinity there present uh, in those situations. And so there are these glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. And one of those, then, is what Jude is mentioning in verse 5. This, this event where Jesus saved the people from Egypt. And when we hear about this reality, we don't just hear this here, but we, we hear about this attestation of Jesus delivering them from Egypt in other parts of Scripture as well. Uh, in Exodus 23, this is how it's relayed. In verses 20 through 21, God tells Moses that he would send an angel before him to guide him. And that God's name was in the angel. As the name of God represents his nature, will, and character, it's not some random angel that we find here, but this is God himself. It says there in verse 20 of Exodus 23, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. 
Um, many scholars believe another Christophany. This is the pre-incarnate Christ leading the people up out of Egypt. And what Jude then reminds these Jewish Christians of is that Jesus is our deliverer, that he is our savior, that he was in a very physical way with leading the Israelites out of Egypt, and he's in a spiritual way now. Now, His primary role and function is to bring salvation, is to bring redemption and deliverance for his people. But Jude also reminds them in this verse that Jesus also brought destruction upon those who did not believe. Uh, it says there, there at the end of verse 5 that afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. And maybe that seems a little bit uh, harsh or extreme to you um, to think about Jesus doing that. But the picture that Jude is trying to paint for them is that Jesus takes sin seriously. Uh, Paul actually mentions the same phenomenon in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9 when he says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents in the wilderness. Uh, thinking back to that uh, event of the bronze serpent. Now, this then is a picture of Jesus that we don't think of a lot. Uh, I don't think that when you, when you think about Jesus in your mind, the image that comes first to the forefront is Jesus as a judge, or Jesus as the one who brings an end towards sin. Now, oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we, we think of Jesus surrounded by the children, right? You know, all the children there, and Jesus smiling and loving everyone. We think about him as our Savior, the one who uh, reaches out for the salvation of all people, who died on the cross on our behalf. But Jude does something differently here in verse 5 as he's painting a picture of Jesus for these Jewish Christians. He's painting a picture of Jesus as judge, one who takes sin seriously, one who wants to, to, to weed it out of the lives of his people. And even though this may be jolting to you, I would say that this is not a foreign thing when we look at the life of Christ. Uh, we see in the Gospels very plainly this picture of Jesus. And if, if you remember your Bible reading, where do we see that probably most predominantly? see that in Jesus clearing out the temple. Remember what he does? He takes a whip and he starts driving out the animals and he flips over the, the tables there. And he goes to the Pharisees and he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. And you've made it into a den of thieves and of robbers. You're dishonoring God by what you're doing here. And this picture of, of Jesus with a whip then, it's not a picture that we normally see hanging up in a church. Uh, I, I have yet, in all the churches that I've ever visited growing up and, and pastoring, never once have I seen a picture of Jesus with a whip clearing out the temple displayed in a church. That's not the kind of popular picture that comes into our mind. However, it is a picture that the Gospels present. It is a picture that we find in, in the epistles of Jesus and his role, his his. His heart, yes, is for salvation, but it is also that sin would be taken seriously and that it would be weeded out from the lives of his people. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed that we confess every week, we confess this regarding Jesus, that he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to, what? Judge the living and the dead. 
You see, this aspect of, of who Jesus is, is the judge, the one who treats sin seriously and brings destruction and condemnation for those who reject him in unbelief, is a picture of our Messiah. You see, sin is not a flippant thing to Jesus. He is a God of law and order. And he's not a fan of his creation just deciding to go and do things their own way. But he holds all of us to an account and will at the last day for all people. I remember when I was 10 years old, my dad finally decided that it was my turn to start mowing the lawn. And we had this old beat up push mower it, it was it was heavy, and it was hard to get started. You really had to crank on that thing, pull the cord to get that thing going. And as a 10-year-old at the time, I was skinny, scrawny, not much muscle mass at all. That was a lot of work. And so my dad asked me to do it. I took a couple pulls on the string, couldn't get it started, looked at it in dismay, and I decided that I was going to go play at my friend's house instead. I completely disregarded what my dad told me to do, and as a punk little 10-year-old, I decided that I knew best, and that uh, my dad could probably just do it when he got back. And uh, not, not too surprisingly, my dad wasn't very happy about that decision. And I remember the wrath for my father as uh, he recognized that I had completely disregarded what he had said. Uh, he showed up at my friend's house. He had driven down there, and I had biked from, from our place, my friend lived a couple blocks away. And I remember my dad coming to the door and saying, um, I'll meet you back at our house. Hope you can beat me home. And he got in the car and sped home down the couple blocks. And I got my bike just hoofing it back going, I am so dead. I am, I am getting what I deserve at this point. Um, my dad wasn't a fan of me disregarding his desire for my life and the command that he had given. And in a much greater and bigger way, when we look at the will and desire of God, and we decide to just completely disregard it and say, well, I think I know the best. I'm going to make my own choices here. I'm going to go about things my own way. We also see that God is not such a big fan of that. He has laid down his law for us to, to live by, to follow what he knows is best. And he desires for us to take that seriously. And so Jude gives three examples of God's judgment for sin that we'll see here. Uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. We've kind of already looked at verse 5, but uh, just to kind of reiterate these examples for us, the first example that he gives of God's judgment for sin was for the people who were taken out of the land of Egypt. You know, you have to realize that God miraculously delivered them through, through a series of events with Pharaoh God brought the people out of Egypt, out of bondage of slavery. He parted the Red Sea. He brought them through the wilderness and provided for them manna and quail and fed for their needs. It says in the book of Deuteronomy that for 40 years of them walking in the wilderness, their sandals never wore out. Um, just all these miraculous things of God providing for his people. And yet, there are some who would not believe. Even though there was a pillar of fire by night leading them where they should go, a pillar of cloud by day, for they didn't believe. And, 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 you, and you look at that and you're like, how can you not believe? It's right in front of you. Uh, how could you have the audacity to say, oh, I don't think so. I'm just going to do life my own way. How could you do that? 
But they did. And it says that they were destroyed for their unbelief. That God brought judgment upon them and condemnation for their flippancy and their disregard for him. The second example that we see that Jude gives is in verse 6. About the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, it says there, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That there were angels along with Lucifer, a.k.a. Satan, who was once one of the great archangels, rebelled against God, uh, desired uh, power and authority, and he and all of his followers, the uh, a good chunk of the angels there, they were cast down from heaven, uh, set into these eternal chains, it says, until judgment of the last day. And we hear about that in Revelation chapter 20, that, that Satan and those who had followed after his ways will be encountering the judgment that they deserve. Again, an example that Jude gives of those who decided to go their own way and disregarding the laws of God and his commands asserting instead their own authority. And then the last example that he gives in verse 7 is of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, are pretty wicked cities that we hear about in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And it says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serving as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were a um, place of great perversity, sexual perversity of all kinds, uh, homosexuality that's prevalent there that we see as Lot engages with the men, and um, just promiscuity on every corner. And so with disregard for the natural order that God has established, with disregard for his ways, God brings judgment and condemnation punishment upon those cities and if you remember he is a god who saves he goes and he saves lot and lot's family but the rest of the city is destroyed for their promiscuity for their sinful hearts and sinful ways that disregarded god and and as you see all these different pictures that jude presents the question that i would have for you to wrestle with is why why these pictures of God's judgment towards sin? Why is this presented in these three different examples from Jude 5 through 7? Um, I believe that Jude is trying to do something in the lives of the Jewish Christians who are going to be reading this letter. It's a reminder that God takes sin seriously. And it's, a, it's really an application of law and gospel that we see in these verses. For those who are living in light uh, of their sin and those who are reveling in it, for those who are disregarding God's ways, the picture of Jesus that's presented is the judge on the throne. And it convicts our hearts. And in some ways it terrifies our consciences because we realize for those who have disregarded God's law that we are in deep trouble. That if Jesus is going to take sin seriously as it proclaims that he will, then we stand condemned and judged. And Jude is wanting these Jewish Christians to recognize how seriously God takes their sinfulness. That they would wake up, that they would repent, that they would turn from their wicked ways. Similar way to Nineveh where Jonah goes and says 40 days and Nineveh is going to be destroyed. 
And the king and all the people put on sackcloth and they fast and they repent and God spares them. That's God's desire with bringing the law. God tries to to foot in front of people how seriously he takes sin in order that they would repent and to turn from their sinful ways. And maybe for some of you who are here today, you need to hear that application. The application of the law that Jesus takes sin seriously. And he is the judge who will come again to judge the living and the dead and that everyone will give an account before him. But the application of the gospel we see here is that for those who are following Jesus and living by faith, there's salvation. He delivers. And for the Old Testament people out of Egypt, but for us something sweeter to a heavenly home, salvation from sin and from death and from the power of the devil. And so the picture of Jesus on the throne is not a picture to be feared. Instead, it's a picture of relief. That the one who's in control of everything is your Lord, is your Savior. He has called you by name and has saved and delivered you. And he welcomes you and says, good and faithful servant, come and share in your master's blessing. And so in these verses, Jude 5 through 7, we see this tension there of law and gospel. For those who are following the Lord, it's great news. Jesus is our Savior. He's the one who fights for us. He's the one who defends us. But for the ones who are going astray and disregarding, it comes as a harsh law of warning. Repent. Turn from your ways, lest you too be destroyed as those who have gone before. My prayer for you as a pastor is that as you read what Jude writes here, that the Holy Spirit would apply this to your life in one of those two ways. For some of you, that you would wake up to your sin and repent, recognizing that Jesus takes it seriously. And for others of you, that you would have the application of the gospel brought to you, that as you're living by faith and following Jesus, that his promise is to save you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done in our lives through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to open up our hearts and minds to that reality that you are both Savior and Judge, uh, that this picture of who you are is one of uh, an immense and incredible grace, but also one that treats your word seriously and what you say about sin. Would you embed those truths in our life? We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to God's Word for today. If you are impacted by the message you heard, please consider donating to the Ministry of Living Word Lutheran Church by visiting www.livingwordaflc.org.